brothers, you know. And we played and we got together at home. And But by the time that he started school, I was in the fourth grade. And uh, so we were never really in the same school at the same time. And uh, however, we played together and especially for several years at home. Uh, we played uh, baseball, basketball, football, uh, all in our yard in the next door neighbor's yard, which was Fred. Uh, this was up in Redmond, Ohio, and it's interesting that that Fred lives now down here in Florida. So uh, a lot of good Ohio people know where to go when they get old. <laughs> then in my high school years, we didn't uh, play that too much together. But one thing that uh, I introduced to him uh, was late in the 50s and the 60s was uh, pop rock music. And uh, I listened to it on a little radio that I got, they came from Japan, this was early when they first came here, and I would play him in my bed, and he was in the same room with me, except on the other side, on his bed, and we would listen to it and everything, and he really uh, kind of got into it. Uh, uh, he loved the music, and he always did. I was um, in junior high school uh, band, and I tried to make the high school band, and yeah, I, I didn't make it. So I, I failed there again. Uh, I, I, I could play every instrument and every tune, do everything, except my rhythm was always off, and that's what the band director would say. Uh, but anyway, I, I uh, uh, however, uh, Ken uh, was uh, a lot better when it came to music. And as a matter of fact, however, it was him that he created his own band with some of the friends uh, when I went to college. And I remember when I came home from that first year of college, he practiced with his band in the basement uh, home in our Ritman home. And uh, he played the drums, and he was, you know, pretty good, you know, I would say compared to some of the really giant guys that could do it. But they had some fun times playing in different places. Uh, he later began playing the guitar. Did any of you know that? He became <laughs> obsessed to it. As a matter of fact, I, I don't know how many he has now, Phyllis. A few. <laughs> At one time, he said, my goal is 16, so I don't know how close he got to that. But anyway, he, he had a passion for it. And... Uh, We loved 
especially the 60s and 70s, music and listening to them. Any time that we could get together and be together and uh, at night at the house or any time we could get together, we would listen to it. When I went to college, we separated for a few years, except when I transferred from Tennessee Temple College to Cedarville College in 1968. We had some great uh, time together uh, during that summer. When I graduated from Cedarville College, I became a teacher in West Virginia, and uh, we had no time together at all until 19. 74, when my first child was born. Where is she? Raise your hand. (laughs) Alice, in 1974. And guess what? It was that same year that Ken and Phyllis got married. And guess where they came after their marriage, down to West Virginia to see Uncle Ken's first one of mine. And it was a wonderful time, wasn't it? It was just a day because they had to go on and do other things. (laughs) But anyway, we had a, a great great relationship. Uh, It was an amazing present to have them there with us. And then uh, later that year, I transferred to Ohio from West Virginia, teaching in, in high school there, to a counselor in junior high school. And uh, we all got together a lot during that time. In 1976, however, I uh, established the first Christian uh, school in that area, um, Calvary Christian Academy in Wadsworth, Ohio. And I had a lot of help from Ken. As a matter of fact, uh, the church where we started it had gone out and some of their members came with us. And that church and the whole building was... uh, beautiful and the brick and everything else became a, a school that my uncle wanted me to start. And um, uh, what happened was uh, Ken was uh, right there beside me. And as a matter of fact, uh, I think the gift that persuaded me to establish that school by giving me a book that read that he had read and he It was entitled The Messianic Character of American Education by Dr. Rush Dooney. And I don't want to get teary, but it changed my life about education and what we need our children to learn. And that's when we got very close together. Now, I I will say that 
when we began having some problems with our view on the faith, he became, as he liked to call it at that time, a Calvinist. That's, that's not too bad today either, is it? But I was kind of like not all the way there. I was fully Arminian, but I was, you know. We had arguments at times and everything, and even though he worked with me in that building, that everything, and we were close. One time he came to the house. We had an argument, and he was arguing and reading scriptures and telling me this is what I have to believe, and I'm not biblical if you don't do that and everything else. And uh, the next thing I know, I say, get out of this house, don't ever come back. Yeah. We were so close for years. But it wasn't until I kept reading and going and everything like that, reading several different books that he gave me and that my uncle Kenny gave me, told me to read uh, eventually and, and no longer uh, to be an Armenian. And because of the, the I, would, I would call them the relentless uh, instructions and the message that I got. I was so close when in 1980 I moved to Florida. Uh, you guys were down here for almost uh, three three years or so, I think. Yeah. And he had taught school down here, a Christian school, didn't he? Uh, for a while and, and did other things. And uh, I got a job at, uh, in Ocala as a principal of Ocala Christian Academy. And uh, it was un interesting that during that time when I came in, we were in a room in, in the school and I was developing a science uh, room uh, for experiments and everything, and somebody left a little tape that had one of MacArthur's um, uh, sermons on it, and it just so happened that uh, he was preaching a sermon on Ephesians chapter number one. He said, is that an accident? A.W. Pink, there are no accidents. There's a sovereignty of God. All things come about. And that's exactly what happened. And when he preached that, and I had always looked up to him, I said, man, I have no past. And at that time, Ken and I began getting together, and he started pouring books on me. <laughs> we would meet, and he'd say, now I got you this book. You've got to read this. And and, and uh, it gave me a, a lot of books, and I did a lot of work. Uh, every day, I thank God for Ken. By 1985, it was, 77 was the first time I was ordained and it was Independent Baptist Church. And then in 1985, uh, 
Ken and I went to Atlanta and I was ordained the first time in a Presbyterian church. And we were there for a few years and then things went bad and Ken and I had talked about possibly departing from that and starting an assembly about a Presbyterian and what he told me was was really Southern Presbyterianism. And that's really where it was and where our denomination really started growing. And uh, every day, I thank God for using Ken to bring me to the truth of the biblical teachings that I hold today. For about four years, I was able to work with Ken, uh, and he called me the co-founder of Christian College and Seminary. I did most, not all, but most of the college work, uh, uh, three um, or three and a half uh, uh, different uh, areas were already started. But in that uh, year, I, I would drive all the way down from Ocala down to uh, uh, here, and uh, we uh, uh, worked together, and I worked and expanded uh, the college to um, 13 um, uh, different uh, degrees and uh, in different areas and so on, and uh, so we, we worked hard together and uh, advice came from him and advice came from me for, with the seminary and uh, it was a really wonderful time together. Um, I did that on just three days a week on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays and was back and went back because and, still was pastoring uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church uh, up in Bellevue, and uh, but uh, we had become so very close, and had such a wonderful, wonderful time together. And that was the time that we almost every night. <laughs> and and you know some of you guys that are in this church now know that we'd be out in the backyard and we would set and we would he would put on the seventies music, some 60s, but I like 70s more, and we listened to that for hours and drank a little bit of other stuff. I won't say it in church today. Uh, it was a wonderful time together, and we drew so close. I will miss him. I'm so sorry to be the last member of our church that's alive. But I know and biblically believe that Ken is in heaven with God, the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And he's rejoicing. And I was going to say every day and every night, but in heaven there is no day and night. It's all at the same time. 
rejoicing in God's love for him. He's not looking down on us today. He's rejoicing and only viewing his wonderful life that he will have in eternity. And that's the strong man that my brother was. And I'm so proud of him. Thank you. Well, from an ex-student of Dr. Talbot's, uh, he can't be here for a variety of reasons, which I'll explain in a minute as soon as I read this. But this is important because this speaks to Ken's legacy. It reads this way. Truly bittersweet how the anguish of loss can be curbed considerably when our loved ones are children of God. I'm so glad that we do not sorrow as the world does without hope. Our Lord is overwhelmingly gracious by carrying us through the threshold of death into his loving presence, where we are assured that there is no more sickness, pain, or sin. Dr. Talbot has crossed the finish line ahead of us, so let us temper our sadness with the thoughts of attaining the prize as he has. Let us fill our lives on this side of glory as Dr. Talbot did, in the service of our triune God. May we endeavor to live life to the full by apprehending that which we are apprehended by, and at the end of our race here, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. There are no words we should want to hear more. We weep and we celebrate alongside the Talbot family and all who were blessed to have interacted with him. His life has impacted this world for the cause of Christ. May we be courageous enough to emulate him. And he concludes this by saying, post Denebra Lux after darkness, light. He can't be here because he's an inmate, he's a prisoner, and he's, got, he's going to be in for life. And he, <clears throat> I'm reading this because most of you, maybe you know, but probably not, that Dr. Talbot was very active in prison ministry after his first visit with me at a prison that I was a senior chaplain at. In 2010, this, this particular gentleman was in a class that Ken came in to teach. He did a series of five lectures on the life of John Calvin, interspersed with some church history, and as a result of that class, this man embraced the Reformed faith. And to this day, he has since been transferred from the prison where we started at. He's now at Everglades. And he himself is teaching Westminster Confession of Faith class and a Greek class as a result. He's never getting out. But Ken's legacy goes on, and he's just one example. I've received eight, nine emails from other inmates who were touched by Ken's personality, by his intellectual curiosity, by his willingness to share that with anybody that would listen. And of course... At the time, he started growing his beard, and all the inmates thought that he looked like one of the ZZ Top members, right? As you can imagine, so that helped. But the point I'm making is, is that his influence and his impact goes much further and is much wider than anybody can imagine. These men that were sitting in that class, 
I have since been tutoring and mentoring all along there's throughout the state of Florida and Ken's legacy and his love of the Reformed faith shared with them. They now have little mission fields in eight different, nine different facilities in the state of Florida. Ken's legacy goes on because he was willing to share and give of his time. My personal experience with Ken goes back to 2006. Phyllis and I were talking about this. I've been a chaplain since 2000, 2001. This is 20 years. And I came to DeSoto, uh, moved to Arcadia to take over the senior chaplainship of uh, DeSoto Correctional. My wife was born and raised in a very, very strict uh, Christian Reformed family. She was one who had to recite the Heidelberg Catechism when she was 12. Right? And we could not find a church. In the area where we were, it was all Pentecostal churches and, and uh, not exactly our cup of tea. She said to me, you have to find us a church. And I made a phone call, went through the phone book, made a phone call. And I think it was Doc who answered the phone. When I called and I said, you know, what are you all about? What's going on? How are you, you know, give me some information. All right, we're going to try it. We drove up from Arcadia. That first Sunday we came in, we stood for the Ten Commandments. And my wife looked at me and said, we're home. <laughs> we're home. And ever since then, we have been home in the Reformed faith. And I have a history with Ken of coming through and taking seminary classes and, and whatnot. But there is not a man on the face of the earth that has influenced me, impacted me more so than Ken Talbot. And for that, I will be forever grateful. What he personally has done for me is given me a love, a reverential love for reformed confessional orthodoxy. And that's what I preach in every prison I go in. When I, you talk about evangelism, evangelism typically isn't connected with uh, Reformed Presbyterians, but I do a lot of evangelism, and what's interesting is how many men who have never heard of anything like this, they're not used to the reverence, they're used to the happy clappy, they're used to all kinds of things, but they're not used to the reverence that comes along with confessional Reformed faith. So, because of Ken... I have the privilege of teaching in facility after facility after facility, preaching in facility after facility, the Reformed faith, confessional Reformed faith, and I owe it all to Ken and his influence in my life, and I thank God for him. Ken Talbot was my dear brother. I love Ken. Ken and I go way back, longer than most of you in this room, certainly not Randy. <clears throat> but uh, we were both at the same church in Ritman, Ohio. And uh, it was interesting that we, in the 70s, at that church, Ken and I, we discovered the Reformed faith together. He'd take me to the bookstores. We'd go and I'd spend all my money. I was a high school student. I didn't go to football games. I went to the bookstore 
and I bought A.W. Pink and Lorraine Bettner and John Calvin and Charles Hodge and, and the list goes on and on. I didn't have any money, that's why Ken had to take me. <laughs> <coughs> but we, we discovered the Reformed faith together in those days. We were Puritan when Puritan wasn't cool. <laughs> and it was Ken that took me down to Covenant College. Uh, I tried to persuade him to come as well, and he did. He studied under all of those giants, Gordon Clark, Dr. Krabendam, and uh, he, he, Ken, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And he was sitting across from Don Graham, who was an education professor, and he was explaining to Don his vision, his dream of a, of a school that, that would train ministers in this unique way. And he explained how he, how he, how he wanted this to, to function. And Don Graham um, looked across his desk and said, Ken, what are you doing here? You know what you want to do. You know how you want to do it. Go do it. And he did. And Whitfield Seminary, Whitfield College, was born. The greatest ruler in all Israel, during the high watermark of Israelite society and culture, was Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man in all of the Old Testament. And yet Solomon did not finish well. How many times do we see people, both in the scripture and in our own lives, who have a promising beginning, a promising start, and do not finish well? My brother Ken, the older brother that I never had, I have a sister who I love dearly, sweetest girl in all the world, except for my wife. <laughs> Never had a brother, but in Ken, I had a brother. And uh, I love him dearly, and I will miss him greatly. And Ken finished well. Amen. I am to read to you from the scripture passage today, which is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians, we'll read the entirety of the chapter. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word? Hear now the authoritative, inspired, inerrant word of the Almighty God. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. 
But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in trickery nor distorting the word of God, but by the open proclamation of the truth, commending ourselves to every person's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants on account of Jesus. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen containers so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the dying of Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who live are constantly being handed over to death because of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with you, for all things are for your sakes, so that grace, having spread to more and more people, will cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Pray with me. Father, we ask your blessing on this your holy word as it is opened to us today. And we remember your faithful servant, Ken Talbot. And as we remember him, let us do so always with an eye to your glory, which was the driving force of Ken's life. Now we ask that you open to us your word today and that we will also live governed by that same driving force, that we live to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. In the passage that Dr. Bill has read before you, I have a short outline, several things to bring up. In brief mention, I want to bring to your attention five 
areas where Dr. Ken and the Apostle Paul agreed for examples to us. I want to talk about the fading vanity of men and the outward decay of the body and the inward renewal that the passage speaks of. And then, as Dr. Bill did, I'd like also to encourage us all to finish well. I would like to open with a quotation. I I was very glad to hear Dr. Randy mention Southern Presbyterianism. It's formed much of my own thought. From the Reverend James Henley Thornwell to open today, listen to the words of Dr. Thornwell. This is taken from his sermon called The Vanity and Glory of Man. There is a voice, however, which cries to us from the tombs, and which, aiming far higher than to awaken a few transient emotions, instructs us in lessons of everlasting importance. It is the voice of God confirming by his providence the solemn admonitions of his word, and and as it proclaims the vanity of all things earthly, riches, pleasures, uh, learning, friends, Its design is not to inspire a sickly disgust of life, nor to torture the heart with bitter complaints of our perishing state, but to turn our eyes from this dissolving tabernacle and fading world to that building of God, that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The grave, like the ancient pillar of cloud, though dark on one side, is bright on the other. It shrouds the earth in gloom, throws a damp upon its brightest joys, and withers its fairest honors only to teach us that here we have no continuing city, that we are only strangers and pilgrims upon earth, and that our abiding home, the true rest of the soul, is beyond the skies. Thus far, Dr. Thornwell. So I told you that as we read through this chapter and I meditated upon it in preparation, I had five points where the Apostle Paul sets forth his own attitude. It's a good example, but this same example was given to us by our brother the first. I was reminded in verses 7 through 11 that the Apostle Paul and our brother, Dr. Dr. Ken Talbot, labored in the kingdom of God under much difficulty. There were physical difficulties and infirmities of the human body, this earthen vessel. Certainly the example of copious labor for the kingdom of God's sake, while also hampered by physical malady, was evident in all who knew our brother. Yet he labored on, often without sleep or comfort, in a world where leisure and idleness has become a virtue and pleasure a veritable human right. This is an example to be followed. He labored under much criticism as well as all the servants of Christ do. Yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Secondly, I took notice in Dr. Talbot's ministry as one of my mentors and exemplars that he was a man of truth, a man of the exegesis of the scripture. Like the apostle before him, who made it his endeavor to handle the word of God with straightness and orthodoxy, not deceitfully. There was more than one occasion after when listening to a lecture or a sermon by Dr. Talbot, I found him to be refreshingly honest with the text. 
performing those extra labors to go the extra mile in solving an apparent difficulty. He had an overriding foundational belief that the mind of God does not contradict itself. And so, like we read in Ecclesiastes 10.10, when the axe is dull, we must put to more strength. So he put to more strength in his labors in exegesis and in expositing the scripture for all who would hear. The third example that I noticed between, uh, that was consistent between the great apostle and my mentor is the care for his charges. The apostle declares clearly here that one of the things that he looks forward to in eternity is seeing the Corinthians at his side. That when they stand, they stand together. The Lord says, we will, uh, he will present us with you. And there is a record of those labors that are kept by the judge of all the earth. As John will write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, set the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. And as the apostle writes in Hebrews 6.10, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love and work of faith that you have exercised toward his. And you'll know exactly what I mean when I go on to say these few but poignant words. Dr. Talbot took the call. It doesn't matter where he was in bed asleep at home with his wife, riding around in the car, testimony after testimony after testimony says that Ken took the call. He answered the question. He encouraged, he instructed, corrected, directed. He did all of those things. Why? Because he loved his charges. He loved them. And that love was as palpable as any that we have seen. And so he took the call, even on his sickbed, he took the call. I can't tell you how many times he and I spoke. I, and uh, he would call me or I would call him and I would hear this weak voice on the other end of the line because he was suffering under some malady. Yes, brother, what do you want to talk about? And talk we would for hours sometimes. He took the call. Another example that I'd like to press here is that the apostle speaks about the creation of all things by the Lord. He spoke and light leapt into existence because reality truly exists in the mind of God. And, it is, and his voice is creative of reality. And let us remember our brother's strong labors to promote and to keep the biblical doctrine of six-day creationism in a day when such a doctrine is laughed at and ridiculed by many. And the fifth example that I would like to make note of here is um, the renewal of the inward man day by day. Paul says our outward man perishes and our inward man is renewed day by day. And this was evident in all that spoke to Dr. Ken, even as his illnesses and weaknesses hampered him, yet his joy was not diminished one whit, was it? He was cheerful. He didn't go on and on and rattle on and on about his maladies. No, rather he spoke of his blessedness, of his thankfulness, and of his joy. His inward man truly was uh, palpably to all who would take note, renewed day by day. In these five things and in many others, Ken was an example to us all, particularly to me as I preach 
But as every good sermon must do, and if the good doctor were here today, he'd say, now stop talking about me and get on with the text, would you? And so let's do that. Let's move on then and pick out just a few things for our notice here in the text. First of all, Paul speaks about the preaching of the gospel here, and so must we. Beloved, we all know, we all sense, it is revealed to us in Scripture and in our own constitutions, and it walks all around us. As David told Jonathan one day, there is but a step between me and death. Our world preaches this sermon to us all the time. David met it in a particular contest. He was being pursued by King Saul, obviously, but, and here it looms over us in another. There is this nagging thing that troubles the heart of every man, that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. When we preach the gospel, then, we must preach sin and corruption and death, as well as grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness and reconciliation. As our brother and I uh, agreed on on several occasions on the phone, as we said it in our shorthand way, in order to know the good news, you've got to know the bad news, right? And so this passage reminds us of that. And the Apostle Paul will talk about speaking very, very plainly, We use very or great plainness of speech. And oh, that is what we need. That is the need of the hour. It is that very plain speech that speaks to us about not only mercy and forgiveness and grace, but sin and righteousness and judgment. The world would tell us that what is important is what you have, what you gain, what you acquire, and what you own. The Bible declares that the soul is precious and one can gain the whole world, but that the value of the whole world is insufficient to purchase one soul. You can gain the whole world and lose your own soul. In Psalm, that's Matthew 6, 16, 26. And in Psalm 49, 6 through 14, the psalmist there writes that the price of a soul is precious. It endures forever. It is an eternal thing and it is not touched By temporal worthlessness, it cannot be bought. Not by anything temporal, not by anything of this world. The world would have you look away from age and illness and human infirmity and would place before you the beautiful, the strong, the athletic, the rich, the cheerful, the smiling, the forever young and vibrant, and they do that in a never-ending stream, one right after the other. Why? To get you not to think about the inevitability of what faces each one of us. Paul, with the verity of an inspired apostle, when he declares that to some the gospel is hid, often this gospel is hidden because these are the very things. It becomes another advantage, right? There are all those things that surround people and attract their attention and draw them off from what is Important, what is lasting, what is eternal. And so they are distracted, and that by design of the enemy of our souls. And so what do they do? They add Jesus as another thing in their arsenal of things. 
They're already charmed. They have this wonderful life with all of these temporal goodies and they'll add Christ as one more thing to their galaxy of goods. But Christ says, you must be born again. You must slip the bonds of this temporal world and you must have a birth that is not related to flesh as he will tell Nicodemus that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye, all you Pharisees, you must be born again. Nicodemus, blown away by such a speech, says, how can these things be? Distracted as he was by the religious fervor of his class. Other times it is that our need is hidden under layers of cosmetic surgery and exercise and the other idols of the youth and health cult, or perhaps under wealth and strength and, and business and any other of the gods of this age. It has been rightly held that we live, although we live, in a world of graves and in a land of dust and of things turning to dust, that few hear that testimony. The old man, feeble from age, lays himself down at night with plans for tomorrow, rises in the morning and makes plans for next year. The young man, also thinking very, very little of his death, does not take note of the graves around him that contain even his peers. Even the little infant born with years of expected hope may pass an untimely death. No, this world cries out to us, preaching the sermon of corruption day by day. But there is a blindness that engulfs men. Paul will call it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the deceivableness of unrighteousness. Jesus, or rather John will say in John chapter 1, that men love darkness rather than light. And they would rather focus on those temporal and passing things than think on that which is eternal instead. So in the midst of this blindness and deception that engulfs our race, in order to be successful in this ministry, we must, as the apostle has said in this passage, use very plain speech. The plain speech of telling a corrupt and dying race that the sons of Adam have something terribly wrong with them. And it is them that need saving from the wrath to come. For they have sinned against God who is unimaginably holy and glorious, upright, and forever just. So, beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for the righteous and for the beautiful and for those who are deceived. It is for sinners. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for those who have turned away from the vagaries and vanities of this world and who call upon the Lord to deliver them from the wrath to come. We talk about being saved, don't we? When we say saved, what do we mean? We mean saved from something, that is, from the wrath to come. And so we are reminded in times like this 
that the Lord has not given us an angel to preach to us. You remember Cornelius, a devout Gentile man with many, many servants and soldiers under him. And Cornelius, praying in his house one day, sees the vision of an angel. And what does the angel say to him? Wait right here, Cornelius, until I bring you a man to preach the gospel to you. Remember that? Why would he do that? Why wouldn't the angel simply speak to him and tell him about the gospel of Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul gives us the answer in this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. What is the answer? We have this treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels. In earthen vessels. The Lord has committed something to ministers Clay, pots, clay, vessels, as it were. Preachers of clay. And why clay? Why would the Lord take the most valuable of commodities, that which perishes not, and place it for display in a clay pot? The apostle tells us why in this passage. So that the glory would be of God and not of men. The glory belongs to God and not to men. If you remember what happened, Paul, on his, on his missionary journey. Here he is preaching the gospel. And so he has the, the message of an apostle and the signs of an apostle. And the priest and all the worshipers of the idols came out. And they just about did sacrifice to them. And it was everything that Paul could do to keep them from doing that. Men, we are, what did he say? Of like passion with you. We are weak like you are. We are men like you are. This glory, it belongs not to us. If our brother was here, he'd tell you that. It belongs not to us, it belongs to God. It is the great privilege of the minister to preach the gospel. He himself is a clay pot that he might give up all of that recognition and glory to God. The second reason is that he himself would know the great need of his hearers because it is his need as well. Every man that preaches the word of Christ, he preaches the word to himself as well as that of his hearers. He is like the old preacher that said, I preached as never to preach again, a dying man to dying men. And oh, what will make the message more palpable than that it comes from a clay pot that will one day give up its constitution? And thirdly, that faithful preachers uh, all will pass from the scene. Paul has gone into glory, and so have many of our beloved teachers and mentors. So we must not rest upon them but upon Christ who, Hebrews 7.25, ever lives to make intercession for us. And so as Paul says here, we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord. And he is in this passage identified as the Lord of glory. And we preach ourselves as your servants. And Paul elsewhere would say Christ's servants for his sake. This was our brother's legacy. And so as we mourn the loss of our beloved preacher this day, 
We mourn not as those who have no hope. He has and still has in the presence of Christ a treasure. He holds that treasure to this day. He cleaves to Christ through his gospel, as do all who have heard and believed the sweet treasure preached, that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Certainly we cleave to our brother's message even today. The message of Jesus Christ come from heaven to earth to save his lost sheep and bring them to everlasting glory. That's what we cleave to this day, and this is our hope. And so God who created all things by Jesus Christ, who caused light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts in the new creation, revealing the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ. Think of the extraordinary nature of the gospel. We think of the power. Some of you have an engineering background. So think of the horsepower that it takes to create a universe. I can't. It's too much. Can't do it. But what can we think of? We can think of that mighty power of God that indeed created the universe. But notice that it is that same power. It is that same voice now preached through the voice of a clay vessel that recreates, that creates in, a, in one who is dead in trespasses and sins, life. As God spoke light in the beginning, so today, over and again, through the treasure that is held in earthen vessels, speaks life. And they live, those who hear. Those whose ears are opened. And so, beloved, uh, we must ensure then to the hearers that we would not be confused. This messenger, he is made like other men. And note how the apostle goes on to describe this ministry of the gospel for him and for many who preach the gospel. It is fraught with weakness, affliction, spiritual stress, anxiety, the concern of all the churches. It is accompanied with persecution, strife, contention with gainsayers. It is accompanied with the weakness of human nature, fatigue, distraction, temptation, sin, caring for our own soul in private as well as publicly for the souls of others. Certainly we can hear in this passage who is sufficient for these things. But our sufficiency is of God who hath made us able ministers of that new testament. Why then do these ministers go on and what sustains them? It is Christ who sustains them. We read several times in the life of Paul that He was sustained by Christ, that the Lord stood by him. His sufficiency was of Christ. And so the minister looks to that day when both he and his charges will enjoy Christ fully at the resurrection. And he preaches and ministers in confident hope. Beloved, this this passage teaches us that our brother has just recently taught us a great and powerful lesson The power is of God and not of men. While our outward man perishes, our inward man is renewed day by day. Our brother, even in his passing, has taught us a powerful gospel truth that we need a Savior and that we will keep this date and we must, as we have heard already, finish well. Those who preach the gospel must live and they must die in the gospel. And even this 
great event is a part of the ministry of these clay pots and the legacy that they leave to us, the legacy our brother has left to us as they finish well. The minister proceeds not because of earthly reward. The earthly rewards, which are but few, are a constant reminder to look elsewhere to the weight of the glory that remains ahead. I began this brief sermon with a little bit on the vanity of this world. Paul will contrast that vanity with the glory that follows. And for those of you that don't know what he's talking about, he's talking about a scale. On the one side is vanity and lightness, which always goes up. And on the other side, weight and substance, which always goes down. And the word glory in the Hebrew is a word that carries with it weight and substance against all of the other vanities that are not worthy to be weighed even as the dust of the balance. So then, our brother, with his eyes fixed on that which is not seen, has passed into that unseen place. He, with his Savior, in light and glory, our eyes then must remain fixed upon the same things, the truth that all men are born into this world for trouble and the, as the sparks fly upward, that the wages of sin is death, that we come forth from the womb speaking lies, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there is a balm in Gilead, that the sting of death is really and truly taken away in Christ. And so as we close, just a couple of thoughts. In Hebrews chapter 13, we remember this verse, verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. The word conversation there is an old English word which means the way that they lived. Remember the way that they lived. Remember the end of the way that they lived. You see, it is my contention today that the last sermon preached by Dr. Ken Talbot was not from a pulpit. The last sermon preached by Dr. Ken Talbot was to all of us, finish well. Keep your eyes where they belong. Take them off of this world and look to the one to come. Isn't this the lasting legacy. Oh, we've heard many things about the legacy, about the seminary, and we love the seminary, and we wanted to see it go forward and expand and grow in this vision, compass the earth. Of course we do. And we want to see Christ Presbyterian Church grow and, and expand and, and bring many to saving knowledge of Christ. But they will, these entities will do so as they keep their eyes on him. And listen to this last sermon preached by our beloved friend and mentor. So the questions that we have to close with are simply these. Will we carry the legacy on? Not just in the seminary, yes, that must go forward. Not just at Christ Presbyterian, yes, that must go forward. Not just in the RPCGA, yes, that must go forward. And Westminster Presbytery, yes, all of those must go forward. But they must go forward in the particular context of the final sermon. Seeing that which is unseen. 
looking to the glory that is to follow and not focusing on the things of this world. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a more eternal weight of glory while we look at the things which are not seen. Because the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. In another context, speaking of the same thing, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a few verses on from here, he will say, we walk by faith and not by sight. Beloved, will we do that? That's the legacy. Will we walk by faith and not by sight? Remember the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73, a very famous psalm. It begins with, Surely God is good to Israel, even to such as are upright in heart. And that's as far as it gets in the positives. And then in the very next verse, But as for me, my step near slipped. I was almost gone. What happened to Asaph? Here's what happened. He got his eyes on the prosperity of the wicked. There's no pangs in their death. They have more than heart could wish. It looks like they're having a pretty good time of it. Surely I've cleansed my hands in vain. I've washed my hands in innocency for nothing. Then, he says, I went to the house of God. I heard a sermon. I know it's not there, but it's implied. And then I saw their latter end. Thou dost set their feet in slippery places. And then the rest of that, that's about halfway through the psalm, and then the rest of it is Asaph's repentance and falling upon the Lord. Surely I was, a, I was as a beast before thee. I was ignorant, and how foolish was I to consider such vanities as these. And so with Asaph, we must turn our eyes heavenward and listen to what he says in that time of his repentance. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee, Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't that the legacy? Isn't that the subject, the three points, the, the introduction, three points, conclusion, and benediction that our brothers left us? It is. And we must hear it today. We must hear that sermon. We must process it. It must come in. We must, as our catechism says, we must receive it with faith and love. And we must lay it up in our hearts. And we must practice it in our lives. So the plain speech to you today is that many of us have made a profession of Christ, but beloved, go on to finish with Him. Turn away from the things, the vanities of this world. Christ will say in the parable of the sower that these things choke out the word, that it become unfruitful. No, instead, we must have hope. We must have confidence. We must put this world in its rightful place. These are times when eternity comes closest in its orbit to time and ministers do well to make full opportunity 
of those times with plain speech. So, beloved, we must have this fixed in our minds that, that, we, that what we see in this world cannot compete with what God says uh, for the title of truth. What God says is true. And this world is full of cobwebs and vanity. No matter that the world parades that which is new and fresh in an endless stream before you, hear God's word instead and cleave to him. God has not left us without a witness. He has told us of this world's vanity and of the vanity of men and our transitory estate. And he has also told us that the heavens which were stretched out by him at the beginning, at the end, they will be rolled up. Here, as Dr. Thornwell told us, we have no continuing city. This is our brother's final sermon to us. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Let's stand and pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy good word and for our brother's example. And Lord, we pray that that legacy would carry on with us, that we would behold the things that are not seen, that we would fix our gaze upon the eternal, and that we would turn away from the distractions and vanities of this world which all must give way in the end. Oh Lord, we pray that we might remember our brother's example to us of this great point, this great principle, that often with very little in this world and very little of this world, he and we must march forward toward that which is lasting and glorious. Lord, help us to make good use of even this difficult providence and that we might leave this place with much reflection and much thought and that we might turn to Christ Jesus, who alone is able by his own resurrection to deliver us even from what seems to us the insuperable bonds of death. Grant us thy good word, we pray, Grant us thy spirit to drive it home into our hearts. And Lord, we pray then, grant with thy grace helping us that we might live these things and speak of them one to another in good and godly conferences as these days of shadows go by, that we may live in thy light. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please remain standing and let me give you a brief benediction and then you'll be dismissed. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. You're dismissed.